0: Welcome to the Medical Sales Certification Podcast. This is Colby Wood. And, uh, and on this podcast, I have a guest, uh, Dr. Adam Yankee, joining me. And so I will get to that shortly, but uh, we kind of had a compressed time to be able to knock out this podcast before uh, in the morning before he started his day in clinic. So I didn't want to take up too much of our time doing the introduction. Uh, you'll hear a short introduction that I do for him there but i wanted to uh, do a little bit more thorough introduction because there uh, there's quite a bit to say about dr yankee so um, he is a fellowship trained sports medicine surgeon here in chicago illinois he is an assistant professor in the department of orthopedics as well as an assistant director of the cartilage restoration center at rush university medical center dr yankee's practice is focused on advanced arthroscopy and shoulder replacement but it also has a special focus around patellofemoral dysfunction and cartilage restoration. Uh, Dr. Yankee went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio for undergraduate. Uh, He majored in engineering physics and zoology with a minor in non-linear mathematics. So um, if you guys were wondering, we do not get into non-linear mathematics in this podcast. That's for another one. He then received his medical degree from Rush Medical College, and followed that up with his orthopedic surgery residency and sports medicine fellowship, both at Rush. Throughout his orthopedic training, Dr. Yankee completed his Ph.D. in biochemistry, which has resulted in a new method for analyzing cartilage activity with comparisons between normal aged and damaged cartilage. And to date, Dr. Yankee has written over 50 peer-reviewed manuscripts and book chapters along with presenting over 50 abstracts at national and international meetings. Among his numerous professional societies, he was selected as an emerging leader by the American Orthopedic Association. And he is also involved with many college and professional sports teams, including the Chicago Bulls, Chicago White Sox, DePaul Blue Demons, Chicago Riot, and Chicago Force. So, that is Uh, A quick background on Dr. Yankee, and like I said in the last podcast episode with Dr. Brian Gruber, um, I am going to put all the ways that you can stay in contact with Dr. Yankee, uh, his social media, his website, and uh, the phone number to connect with them at Rush. Um, Like I mentioned previously as well, if you get a lot out of this podcast, if you like to have If you like me having surgeons on the podcast, please follow uh, Dr. Yankee uh, on all of his social media, and if you or you know somebody who has an orthopedic injury that you think would be um, something that should be seen by an orthopedic surgeon, I could not give a higher recommendation for Dr. Yankee. So uh, without any further ado, here is the podcast. First of all, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Yankee. Um, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, Quick background on Dr. Yankee is that he is a fellowship-trained sports medicine surgeon in Chicago, Illinois, uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics, as well as an assistant director of the Cartilage Restoration Center at Rush University Medical Center. And Dr. Yankee's practice is focused around advanced arthroscopy uh, and shoulder replacement with a special focus in patellofemoral dysfunction and cartilage restoration. So first of all, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast, and we can dig a little bit more into your background potentially, uh, but really uh, just appreciate you uh, letting me have you on, and uh, and thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be
0: here. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess first and foremost, I'd like to kind of like ask the majority of the people that are on the podcast initially, um, and before we kind of dig into your background, um, you obviously have... So- you know, an an impressive resume, to be totally candid, Um, and you've accomplished a lot thus far uh, as an orthopedic surgeon. What is it that motivates you to not only accomplish what you have thus far, but continue to, let's say, push and pursue excellence in your field? Or, you know, what motivates you as a person?
1: I think there's uh, two main factors. And so one is, I think I'm always just searching for answers. And it's something that even though it can cause a lot of extra work and time, I can't shut it down very well. And so if I see something that I think just has ways to be more efficient, ways to improve what we're doing, uh, have a better idea of monitoring what we're doing and actually add metrics to what we're actually trying to accomplish and our results, then that's always interesting to me and I always like adding to that. You know, Separately, um, I've been at Rush now for 17 years throughout all of my training and then being in practice. I think the culture here fosters that as well. So I had a lot of mentors that I saw actually asking questions and answering them, and that only further spurred me to want to do more and more. And the two of those, I think, being in a good environment and then also having some natural tendencies to be interested in that, that kind of led to where we're at now.
0: (laughs) Got it. Do uh, (laughs) to that point, you know, when you you look at kind of the situation that you're in, you're always looking for ways to improve. Do you find that that's only in your specific uh, role as a surgeon or like in every area of life do you find like you know when you go home are you able to turn that off and on or is that just you know constantly running it's probably more pervasive
1: than I want it to be certainly at home and so I think it's important to turn it off sometimes Uh, but no I think that there's a good balance
0: got it got it well a little bit of your background you went to Miami of Ohio correct for undergrad Uh, how did you end up there and where, I guess, where did you grow up, you know, brief background, where did you grow up, how did you end up? at Yeah, I,
1: I grew up in Ohio, and uh, I was actually planning on initially going anywhere but Ohio for college, <laughs> and then as I started looking at schools and, you know, distance from my family being close close enough, but not too close, you know, it was a good balance there, and then uh, the academics were in line with what I was interested in, and, um, you know, I liked the combination of the location, and then... I knew quite a few people that were also going there, and so uh, with its academic background, and I ended up playing lacrosse there, as well as knowing some
0: people going. I I think it was a good combo. Very cool, very cool. Uh, Did you ever plan on doing something other than medicine, or did you know kind of from the very beginning that that's what you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I would say not really. I pretty much always wanted to be a physician of some sort, and it started when I was younger, and I used to watch live surgery or not live surgeries but videos of surgeries on tv when i was actually a little kid which looking back seems a little weird but (laughs) the uh i used to look at watch those and i was really fascinated with the surgical aspect and uh, it turns out that one of the videos i used to watch when i was like 10 years old i found out that one of the surgeons i worked with in training later it's a very specific surgery, and I was like, you know, I watched a video on this. The like, guy was like, I think that was my video. Wow, oh, like, really? well, this is really full circle. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you remember what it was?
1: It was a plastic surgery reconstruction in a child, where they had to actually lift a lot of the child's face off to reconstruct oh, wow. her craniofacial bones, and then they kind of put it back down. So it's something that leaves an imprint. <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, <laughs>
0: I'm sure. Um, I'm and sure. It's
1: not a lot of people that do that surgery. Yeah. And so that's how I ended up finding that other physician.
0: Very cool, very cool. Um, How did you end up, so obviously you went there for undergrad, then you went to Rush for med school. Yes. Uh, How did you end up there, and what what was kind of the the rationale behind you wanting to go to Rush?
1: Yeah, so coming out of uh, uh, of college, I wanted to move to a bigger city, and so Oxford, Ohio is a great college town, but um, I wanted to just go into a larger metropolitan area, so I told one of my mentors that I worked with in college, that I did some research with, I just wanted to go to sh- uh, Chicago, New York, or Boston. Okay. And I wanted a recommendation of where to go. And some of the research I had done already was musculoskeletal. And so a lot of the connections he had were people that worked in connective tissue. And so he recommended that I come out here and work uh, with who ended up being one of my mentors, Dr. Shubinskaya. And I worked in her lab for a year okay. um, and before I was a medical student and after oh. I graduated from college, so okay. I was a lab tech for a year. And then I applied to medical school while I was, was here and applied all over. Uh, but then what really started to draw me to Rush is once I was at that stage, I started to have a specific interest in orthopedics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, we do a fair amount of orthopedics here. And so it ended up being a natural fit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and and kind of moving on from, from there, you obviously did your residency and your fellowship. Um, what, at what point? kind of throughout that process, do you figure out that really sports medicine wanted, was gonna be the subset that you wanted to focus on? Like at what point does that come into play throughout whether it's med school, obviously you kind of had an inclination toward orthopedic, uh, especially of some sort. How, do you, how did you come to wanting to do sports medicine?
1: Yeah. The, uh, you kind of need to figure it out. So residency five years. Mm-hmm. You really need to figure it out by your third year, okay, if not sooner, because you want to start developing a resume that's consistent with somebody that would be applying to that field. And so doing research and making sure that uh, you're just well-educated on that subject is really important because then you start to do your fellowship applications in your fourth year. Uh, for me, the reason that I liked it a lot was I thought it was a great combination of different aspects of orthopedics where you could deal with complex situations. You could deal with patients that have had multiple revision surgeries, and you can also deal with very simple situations Mm -hmm. too where people are just trying to get back to daily life. I also like the combination of arthroscopy and so doing the work with the cameras versus doing open surgery. So there's a lot of variability in the types of surgery, which I also enjoyed. And then the research is really based on soft tissue or connective tissue. So tendon to bone healing, Cartilage regeneration, um, things along those lines, also, which mm-hmm. were things that I had had a lot of experience in, but also really enjoyed. And so I think that those three things really just fit my personality and what I was interested in.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, if if you could help me, actually, honestly, because I'm somewhat curious about this how do how do things line up between Rush University, Rush Medical College, and then Midwest Orthopedics at Rush? Because my understanding is they're somewhat separate entities, but obviously tightly woven at some level. How does, what does that relationship look like?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit different. And the way to kind of describe it is it's privademics. So we're not exactly a private practice and we're not just academics. And so there's Rush University, which is the hospital itself, which also has the medical school and the other schools that it has, like the nursing school associated with it and their graduate school. Um, And then Midwest orthopedics at Rush is technically a private practice. It's its own functioning entity but we're the uh, you know, quote unquote official consultants for Rush for okay. orthopedics. And so we're a private practice that works exclusively with Rush as far as a university or academic association.
0: Got it, that makes sense, that makes sense. Well I'd like to kind of move into a little bit of your practice and then obviously get into kind of like the curious question I have about your approach with reps and things like that. But I guess first and foremost, you know, you go do a subspecialty, uh, fellowship in, you know, sports medicine. What are some of the biggest things you take away from doing a fellowship or that you have taken away from doing your fellowship that, you know, may or may not lend to either, um, feeling like you're up to speed more quickly once you start your own practice or, you know, is that there's a, may or may not be a marketing component to that. What do you feel like really helped the most with doing a fellowship?
1: Yeah, there are, it's interesting because I was at the same location for residency and mm-hmm. fellowship. And so you can really see in that setting what the difference is of the two because you did both at the same spot. And so, yeah, right. you know, when you're a resident, you spend now, a lot sorry, of... Yeah. Was that with
0: the same doctors?
1: It was with the same physicians. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. It. And so, but the amount of time you spend with them and how it's spread out over five years is much, much different in residency where you may spend two days with one physician then another day with another doc, and then two days with another doc. So you have three different physicians you're with during a week. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to figure out how each of them are approaching patients, how they're approaching surgery. And it's a lot to figure out as you're also learning all of this for the first time. So residency helps you get a lot of that under your belt and get a good framework. Then when you move to fellowship, you're not a peer with those individuals, but you're much closer to that than you were as a second year resident. And so you start to really hone things significantly more. It's also usually, depending on the fellowship, a mentor model where you're really spending months at a time with one individual. And so you really start to understand what is their indications for surgery, what's their decision-making process. And then there's the technical aspect also. And so what's kind of amazing is that the technical aspect is probably, it's not the least important thing, but it's secondary to understanding indications and who are the right patients that need mm-hmm. surgery. Um, it's, it's easily overlooked, especially early in training, uh, but most people can get the technical part down. It's about who's going to really have a benefit from the surgery that matters.
0: Got it. Got it. That makes sense. I think that it, and even from my perspective, uh, probably underappreciated that where you where, my assumption would be, and because it's, I'm not taking care of patients. It's probably you know I overweight the technical aspect of like, well, you're going to be able to be much more hands-on, and you're gonna you're gonna know how to do the surgery better. But yeah, there's I a mean, whole other facet of it. That, there,
1: there's a component for sure, and there's a range, but it's a, there's actually a larger range in indications yeah. uh, than there are in techniques. I would say.
0: Yeah, you say that, and it, it kind of it makes a lot more sense in my mind because you know, from our side of things, on a sales rep side, you know, uh, you book a surgery, we show up for the surgery. Right. You know, that's what we indicated. see, right. Yeah, exactly. it, they've already <laughs> seen you, you know, who knows how many times, they've already gone through a PT, they've already had, you know, indications, contraindications, you know, there's a plethora of other things that you're thinking about that you're dealing with before you ever schedule them for surgery. You know when yeah, we right. show up and it's like, yeah. well, uh, all right, let's do this. <laughs> no, it's very true. And and it
1: affects decisions you're making during the surgery too. You know, it's yeah. all about not just what you're seeing, it's what you remember that patient being like, where they had pain, how mm-hmm. they describe their symptoms, what their exam was like. So you're really trying to take all that into account right. at that time.
0: Yeah. Well I it's somewhat of a, a segue. Um you know, from the sales rep side of things, it, I think it's very easy for sales reps to, and you know, clearly I've been guilty of it myself, not take into consideration the wider, broader scheme of things that you're looking at and considering intraoperatively. You know, instead of, you know, it's very easy for a rep to walk in and you know, ah, I just want the doctor to use my product because that's how we get paid. <laughs> and there's obviously there's a there's a facet of that like that's important, but. At The same time, patient care has to be at the utmost important uh, level of importance, let's say. Um, but what has been your experience working with medical sales reps and maybe how that's evolved from when you probably interacted with a rep the first time, you know, either in residency or something like that, to now maybe how that's evolved now that you're actually in practice?
1: Yeah, I think the one way to say it is I think when I was a medical student, I was a very Immature or naive about it, and I think now it's much more of a real-world perspective. And
0: okay.
1: the uh, and you, you can be you honest know. with me. So yeah, nobody's yeah. going to listen it's to this be...
0: anyway. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I'm
1: not pulling any punches. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. but it's just uh, I don't know how many people share this opinion. But when I was in training, I would I would see physicians and surgeons in the operating room interact with a sales rep and ask them questions like what size screwdriver is this again? Mm -hmm. Or like what size drill bit? And I'd be like, well, the surgeon should know the answers to all those (laughs) questions. And I was like, why is this individual in here telling them this information? And I just didn't, I didn't get it at the time, you know? And, uh, I would also see there's a lot of, you start to learn, there's a lot of people in an operating room that make a surgery go well. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the surgeon, but that's one of like six people. And so, There's the And I don't know that a lot of other people, too, or patients really understand this dynamic either. And so you have a scrub tech who's the person scrubbed in with you that's being hands-on and helping get Mm -hmm. you instruments, and you have the circulator who's trying to grab the the equipment that you need. But if you need some equipment and they're gone, going to get something, and then something else comes up in the next three minutes, which Mm -hmm. seems like half an hour, but (laughs) it's uh, usually not that long because they're doing the best they can, too, then sometimes you're at a standstill unless they're back and uh, the other thing that is interesting so the i feel like when we're in training we see certain instrumentation because of the surgeons we're working with Yeah. and so there's this idea of that there's a bias that if if as trainees that we allow sales reps in to talk to us that it's going to bias us towards using their instrumentation when there's actually an inherent or implicit bias already because we're only being trained on the implants that the surgeons use that are training us and so I think it adds to the diversity of what you're exposed to if you allow people to come in and allow that interaction and so every location is different and what they allow there but it's crucial because otherwise you won't know what's out there and what mm. exists and so you know now so the getting to where I'm at now today in practice, the evolution is like the sales rep for me is a crucial portion of the team, uh, especially if they make themselves that way, you know. And there's certain individuals that are probably a little bit more on the passive end, which sometimes is appreciated because you don't want to be too aggressive mm-hmm. either. Uh, but you can tell that they're actually asking questions that are clinically relevant. They seem to care about the case or at least understanding where their product comes in to treating the certain problem that we're treating at that time. And I think that you see really an escalation of their knowledge base. And in the end, I do think it helps patient care sometimes.
0: Yeah. Well, you kind of, I guess, alluded to it a little bit there uh, at the end of that. But, you know, I'd be curious from your perspective, you know, at, at this stage in your practice, obviously you've worked with a lot of different reps from a lot of different companies. What is it that you feel like you've seen has separated the the reps that are good that you value that are that are bringing value maybe not even necessarily to you sometimes it can be but also to the staff that's in the room versus reps that you know you maybe rather not have in your room yeah
1: <laughs> you know the uh, yeah so there's definitely some and there's I'd say there's like a personality part and then there's like a utility part okay. you know yeah, yeah. and if you yeah. don't have the utility the personality doesn't matter. <laughs> like, you can be the nicest guy or girl in the world, uh, but if you don't know what you're talking about or you don't know your equipment, it's just not going to go well. Yeah. And so I'd say that's like a baseline expectation. And I don't know if all surgeons really understand too that certain people work with a wider range of products. And so yeah. some people have to really know a lot about a single product and some people have many. And so uh, I think that's part of it. But the, the, I guess the problem is if you're part of a company The expectation is you know their products. Mm -hmm. So whatever range that is, you just need to know it. The other part that is what I always think is unfortunate for the sales rep, but is extremely helpful, is that you also need to know where things are in a given hospital location, at a given surgery center, even when the other staff there don't know, or it was placed in a certain area a week ago and then it may (laughs) not be there before and so I think some of that comes down to people power as far as like you need to have somebody that's there early enough you're spread across multiple locations and so yeah. that part can be hard so but I think truly you know one thing that's like a showstopper is that if I ask a question in the middle of a case and they say give me a second and they're looking at their phone or iPad you know, looking something up if it wasn't if it was appropriately already keyed up for the case that's different but sure. like I have no idea Yeah. oh yeah. crap yeah. flipping through the phone thing it's a little different <laughs> We'll phone a uh, of friend here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And The personality part, I think, is probably self-explanatory, but we have, you know, sometimes where people are very personable, and I think that if I was in a social setting, I would have a lot of fun hanging out with them, Sure. but that's not what the operating room is exactly, and so um, sometimes just too many comments about um, just things that are non-medical related mm-hmm. too quickly, mm-hmm. I think can be a little bit of a, a turn-off, to be honest with you, like, because like I'm saying, it sounds kind of harsh, but I want to figure out the utility part first. And then if we had to develop a personal yeah. relationship after that, then that's great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have, just out of curiosity, have you had to have those, let's call them conversations, either in the operating room or after with a rep who was not uh, handling himself appropriately or that at some level didn't uh, live up to the expectation or, your expectations of that person's role within the wider scheme of things?
1: Uh, I would just say that they're kind of a self-limiting issue where I feel like when I've seen things that I felt like were significant enough to make a comment about, something changed without me doing anything. So the individual is either is in a different position now or Mm. uh, they were approached internally or things like that so yeah, um, I don't think it ever got quite to that stage I think I did have one individual that I just went up to directly and I was just like you need to know your stuff like you don't like the utility parts not there and uh, they were new and so we kind of went through a learning period and um, tried to look for improvement just over the next weeks to months Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's always what's what needs to be there, you know, yeah. it's just a genuine interest and in, in interest of getting better. And mm-hmm. um, I certainly don't have all the answers either, we just have to all work towards getting the answers whenever we can. And another one that is interesting is that, and I, I think patients don't realize this, and um, you know, I think that sales reps certainly see it a lot, and surgeons realize it that there's times where there's not already a, a rote perfect solution for whatever is happening at that time and so there can be some really technical questions about like like we're talking about drill bits and things like that but it's like all right i want to try this anchor but in this location which is different with a different guide and i want to know what's your smallest and largest drill bit that can fit in those guides and sometimes you're not making things up but you're improvising right and um you know, to really understand the breadth of information to answer questions like that's really crucial.
0: Well, it's also, and to your point on the utility, understanding at least being able to take what the surgeon is telling you that he or she is trying to do, or you're actually visually seeing it you know, from the sales rep side of things. You've gotta be able to at least picture in your mind's eye, the doctor's asking you a question about you know, what is the smallest size you have for this, because I might be able to use it for that you've got to be able to visualize in your mind's eye from a rep standpoint, okay, I get what they're trying to do here, you know? Right. Or if not, ask you, hey, well, just just to clarify, you know, is this what it is that you're trying to do? Or is this what yeah. you're thinking about? So that, you know, from the rep standpoint, you're not, you're not giving advice or answering questions without really knowing.
1: No, it's a great point. And uh, that's when you really start to see people excel, so to speak, because they'll also say like, I get what you're saying. I get what the questions you're asking are leading towards. I actually have this other thing that you may not even be aware of that might be a good solution for the problem you're talking about. Sometimes it's because it's available now in that surgery, and sometimes it's like after the case, hey, for future reference, we were talking Mm -hmm. about this. This is something else that might be helpful. Is this something you would consider in this scenario? Yeah. Um, And I think that's like a perfect way of approaching it.
0: Well, as a caveat, and this isn't necessarily a question, but it's, you know, I'll say my piece from the rep side of things. In that scenario, where you have, let's say, a product that probably the doctor has not seen, or you would be pulling out for the first time, you've got to you've got to make the judgment call of do I present this intraoperatively, or do I discuss it afterward? And there's I don't know that I've got, have a good answer for exactly when each happens, but it probably is a combination of what kind of relationship do you have with the doctor and how much confidence do they have in you because if yeah. you're going to pull out a product they haven't seen before or say hey I've seen this done before and actually this worked really well you better know what you're talking about Right? Um, or you know you you're going to withhold that until after the after the case is over and say hey look let me show you this we've got this next time you're in this scenario you know there's there's a judgment call that the rep has to make there if you've got a product that you know make <laughs> make the right call <laughs>
1: yeah well it's a, it can be a slippery slope because if you make the suggestion then whether it sinks or swims is kind of on you which it really shouldn't be but it can feel that way sure. on both ends for sure and um i think that that's why i've moved to if there's a product that i think is extremely similar but it's uh just subtle differences that i think make life easier more efficient I would have less issues using that at the time of surgery, but if there's something that's a significant departure from what I would normally be doing in Mm -hmm. the operating room, then I think a great approach is just after a case, notify about the product, whatever it is, and then set up the opportunity to do a lab Mm -hmm. and get hands-on experience um, in a training setting uh, to really understand the comfort level. And there are certain surgeries that I started doing when I was in practice yeah. that I wasn't even trained on. And, you know, I've been in practice for five years now, and it's amazing that there's probably at least three surgeries that uh, are in that category because the field constantly is changing and mm-hmm. evolving. And I did a significant amount of training and cadaveric work before I ever did the first one in a patient. Mm-hmm. Um because that's not the training ground, you know, it needs to be, you need to be set. And so if it's a, just a different suture, or things like that, where techniques are gonna be the same, sure. then obviously that's the other end of the spectrum, but it's a balance for, for both sides.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a couple of questions that I have kind of stemming off of that. Um, before we go kind of too far down the product road, uh, you know, general curiosity on my end is, we talked about you know having good reps and bad reps knowing how to handle yourself etc being having some utility in the operating room how much of the products that you're choosing to use have to do with the rep themselves or is it is it more so I'm looking at the product completely on the standpoint of is this best for the patient and then damn it this company better figure out some reps that know what they're talking about you know like yeah. in in those are maybe two ends of the spectrum. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think the hardest situation I have. So, we talked about like the person factors, which is like the utility and then like character. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, we, yeah, like you said, we haven't really talked about the product itself that they're selling or that they represent. Mm-hmm. And um, there's definitely situations where I know an individual who's got. Good utility, like they know what they're talking about. They're very knowledgeable. They're very personable, but I don't think they have a great product. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's the saddest one, so to speak, because it's like <laughs> this could, it could be a great work. relationship. This yeah. is something that I think could otherwise work well. Um, but like I just try to be honest about that component mm-hmm. of it. But it it is important, you know. If the if it depends on the individual, but for me, that is never gonna outweigh. A product that I'm just not behind mm-hmm. and so um, I think that's just a tough process and I think that everybody that is a sales rep wants to believe that they're representing something that has value sure and there's just a lot of things in our space that are um, commodities where there's stuff that they're really equivalent it's just a mm-hmm. better mousetrap but it's really the same idea and there's things that are really game-changing or different and paradigm-shifting, and so those are much less common. Yeah. Um, and then you get into all the other logistics aspects, like what what's the negotiations of the contracts on the, on the backside uh, for the cost of implants and things like that uh, mm-hmm. that allow it to get to the stage of being in a surgeon's hands. Sure. And some surgeons are hyper-aware of that whole process, and some... Show up and just do their surgeries and leave, because uh, it's a true employed model and a uh, large hospital system. And or they may be forced to use a certain implant in that setting. So, so we have a lot of uh, options and freedom there, which is extremely nice. Um, but it puts us more in that process than individuals that are being yeah. told what
0: they can use. <clears throat> yeah. Um, out of curiosity, on that point, it certainly feels like, from my perspective, even. You know, I got in the industry seven, seven and a half years ago, Um, and even in that relatively short period of time, I've certainly seen things change pretty significantly on, um, you know, even if I show a a product to a doctor and the doctor says, yeah, I'd like to try that product, there are a lot of either loopholes or red tape or things like that that have to go through to be able to get the product into the surgery. But, you know, there's, so I guess the question is, do you see... Do you see the, the industry going more in the direction of open opportunity for new products and new technologies, or is it more restricted? Or how does that kind of, from your perspective, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I think that what's going to guide a lot of that is uh, billing, reimbursement, and charges for implants. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- uh, I think just getting them in, in people's hands and getting them through the door I think there's more logistics involved in that, but it's sure. still doable. And yeah. You can still get there. Um, I think ultimately, you know, value-based care is certainly a big buzzword, and it's something that kind of exists right now and certainly mm-hmm. may exist significantly more. And if there's a surgery like a rotator cuff repair that you can do for $1000 is how much the surgery costs let's just say and that's uh, what get, everybody that's involved gets paid for the surgery it's mm-hmm. just a made up number and the implants <laughs> yeah. yeah and if and the implants are $100 then the system makes $900 and if the implants are $1500 then you paid to do the surgery mm-hmm. and um, again that that's something that Surgeons sometimes are at the decision-making level, but sometimes it's gonna, the decisions are going to be made for them. And so, I think that really trying to provide things that are consistent with like market <coughs> standards, but mm-hmm. then also um, are cost-effective enough, is going to be the biggest issue. Yeah. And as we move more into like biologic therapies and yeah. tissue-based yeah. therapies. I think that is the answer. You know, metal and plastic have been a good answer for a lot of problems and certainly arthritis, but if we could avoid it, it would be better. We're not there yet, but all that stuff is going to cost more than metal and plastic. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Not to minimize that field either, but, um, you know, I think that value-based care is going to be a big part that drives what comes to market. And then one other part's a little bit of a tangent, but the biologic options separate from just pure implants uh, have such a large burden to entry to come into the market right, and the average right. trial spends 10 to $15 million and usually fails. And so um, that's a very difficult burden for industry uh, itself at a company level.
0: hmm mm-hmm. um, Sorry to stay on that minor tangent quickly. Um, do you have any surgeon peers in Europe that you interact with and the reason I ask is because at least the school of thought on my end of the spectrum is that there's a lot more uh, open opportunities over there or a lot of the let's say uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for trials or new products are much easier to be uh, used or tested in the European market versus the U.S. market is that accurate yeah I would say it was
1: accurate and still is accurate but I, the european equivalent of the fda yeah. uh, is actually moving in the opposite direction of the fda so oh, really? actually okay. in the u.s so that certainly still is generally true but even in the last one to two years it's changing and so actually uh, the u.s is starting to open up a little bit more and become less restrictive and a little okay. bit more lenient and in europe it's actually tightening up now uh, more than it was before and so even between Asia, Europe, and the U.S., those markets are all very different mm-hmm. as far as uh, the different criteria to have studies actually uh, happen and to bring products to market. Yeah. Um, but there's a few cell-based therapies in cartilage, for instance, that were extremely well-known in Europe, and they're getting shut down and not paid for anymore by the payers mm-hmm. there. And in the U.S., it's actually being picked up significantly more. Um, Interesting. So the pendulum's swinging a little bit. Yeah, But it's still generally true, yeah, for yeah. sure. Interesting.
0: Well, uh, got a few more questions before we're, we wrap this up. Um, and a couple of them that I'm just genuinely curious about because I feel like at least a lot of, you know, reps feel like they can bang their head against the wall if, even if, you know, everybody thinks that they have the best product. And like, oh my gosh, right. Dr. Yankee is going to love it when <laughs> yeah. he sees this product. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we go call on an office or something. We drop off a brochure, you know, at the front desk. Does that ever get, actually get to your hands? <laughs>
1: uh, this is being recorded. So how many are you resting the,
0: uh, not, not many. Yeah. Not not many. Many. No,
1: it's... Um, so... Like, and this
0: this is not particular to Rush. You can give your general Yeah.
1: I mean, it does end up on my desk, so okay. there's right. a pile of stuff that I have to okay. go through that it would be just with whatever have mail and things it, like okay. that. Well, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> this is general mail sure, so I should sure. go through. And um, I would say the utility of it is uh, if there's, like, some white papers or things uh-huh. like that in it. Um, having, actually, depending on the implant, having some brochures that I can actually give patients uh, yeah. is extremely helpful. And so like for shoulder arthroplasties, for instance, I give every patient that I do a shoulder replacement on. I give them a pamphlet in our surgical okay. binder from that company so they know exactly what implant we're using. But yeah, I would say that there has to be a baseline interest if there's sure. like a straight- up cold call brochure, that comes in my stack of mail, it goes straight in a circular file. Uh-huh. Um, but if it's something that uh, I kind of knew was coming,
0: then, <laughs> sure. then I, will, sure. I will look at it. Yeah. And kind of on that point, if, if a rep wanted to get a product in front of a doctor, my assumption, and I think it's probably borne out as, as reality is, you know, when you're in a clinic, you're seeing a bunch of patients every day and a lot of times you run behind, a lot of times you're trying to play catch up, whatever. The, do you feel like the best time for a doctor to actually look at a product, or you to look at a product, would be on a day that you do have a surgery and maybe you are you have more downtime between surgeries? Is that preferable? I mean, from your perspective, obviously you can't speak for every doctor, but yeah, uh, every surgeon that's out there. But.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I would say 100% in the OR yeah. is much better than in clinic. Okay. Um, so hard to predict the schedule in the office, and we don't even take a lunch break as it is, mm-hmm. and so it would have to be like before we start our office hours, uh, yeah. just because it's more predictable, um, or in between cases in the R,
0: which I think is much much better. Yeah. yeah. Um, last question on the on the rep front would be, you know, from our standpoint, there's a, there's always, you know, trying to build a better mousetrap. and but there's a lot of times there's different, but not necessarily better. So when you're analyzing products, you mentioned white papers and things like that. What are the things that you're looking for to be able to determine just from a macro level? Obviously, we're not talking about product specific, but from a macro level, these are kind of the things that you're thinking about. Like, is this just a different way to do the same thing? Or is this actually going to be something that's better uh, better for the patient, better outcomes, you know, more efficient intraoperatively, whatever? How do you how do you kind of differentiate that so from a rep perspective we can look at our product and say, these are the things that I should be highlighting, assuming that the product can't do that.
1: Yeah, right. The, uh, well, there, So cost is one of them. Yeah. And so that's actually one of the first things I usually ask when something new is coming in, just so I get an idea. Yeah. And if it's like a 2x factor of uh, cost difference, then it better be a 2x difference in efficiency <laughs> or outcomes. You know? sure. um, so that's part of it. The efficiency aspect and reliability uh, technically in the OR with the product is really, really crucial. Mm-hmm. And so if there's something that I can do and the the component's going to misfire one out of ten times, let's say, and then there's one that's was misfiring three out of ten times, then I certainly will be extremely interested. And so we sure. know there's certain products that there's obvious room for improvement. And so when things come up in those spaces, it's, it's much easier and, yeah. and better. And then <clears throat> the reality is that very few of them probably affect clinical outcome because that's a tough bar to, to reach. And if you're talking about a difference in anchors, then probably highly unlikely that it's going to affect clinical outcome. And so you really have to uh, believe that, A, or do it for different reasons Mm -hmm. and so the efficiency uh in the or is a big part of it and the reliability of the implant Um, so i think it just depends on the scenario but i think those are kind of the three big factors and if somebody does come in trying to sell a product based on outcomes it probably does need to be more than just white papers at that point it needs to be peer-reviewed literature that's been borne out Um, otherwise just don't say that you, know what I mean? like, <laughs> you don't have to yeah, You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. there's times where there's still good reasons to use stuff without having that level sure. of information yet sure. so you're better off just laying things out the way they are than overselling
0: it or trying to overemphasize what actually exists well and, and that would immediately or more sent more or less immediately discredit you as the rep if you're going to oversell the product and its capabilities you're not stupid well, the doctors we interact with are not they, we,
1: we all like see. to think we're not stupid. I don't know where we are on the spectrum there, but uh, <laughs> I would just say that uh, I did have an individual uh, relatively recently have a product, and we were talking about it in a reasonable fashion during okay. the case, and then there was kind of no more arguments to make because I was making a decision that it wasn't the right this product yeah. for this situation, and the individual said back to me, well, why wouldn't you use it? And I was just like, "That's the best argument we can come up with. That's the best reason." It's like, "Well, why not?" I was like, "If that's your approach, like, you gotta come up with a better <laughs> approach." Like, and then what about like the last seven minutes of what we have just been talking about? Like, yeah. that's why not? Like, yeah. we just talked about it. <laughs> so, you know, you don't want to be rude to people, sure. but uh, you, I think that having a solid approach is is important. And I think being honest and just saying like, "Look, there's not." outcomes difference. There's probably isn't an outcome difference, but like, how does this feel in your hands? Like, do you feel like this is just a better version than what you were using before? And sometimes that's all it takes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Um, well, as we kind of wrap up here, I'm curious what, what you feel like, uh, the life and the job of an orthopedic surgeon may or may not be changing and looking like, you know, as you kind of look forward, healthcare is, everybody has their idea on what it should or should not look like. and, And we only have a couple minutes, so don't, don't this, this could be an entire podcast in itself, but you know what do, what do you see the job of an orthopedic surgeon looking like as you look down the road two to five years, let's say and maybe if if you look at you know let's say an 18, 19 20 year old individual that's you know maybe thinking about like, hey, I'd like to be in medicine, maybe I'd like to be an orthopedic surgeon. is there advice that you would give for that?
1: Yeah Yeah, it's it's definitely a big question, but the... uh, 30 seconds ago. It's definitely changing a lot. (laughs) And uh, I think that you have to realize that medicine in general is not just medicine. It really is kind of like the business of medicine. And you have to be prepared for everything else that you have to deal with, so so to speak, outside of just caring for patients. And so whether it's managing relationships in an office or dealing with figuring out reimbursement, the and then how to deal with insurances, um, and then how to manage a a world that's becoming more controlled, and where autonomy is decreasing uh, significantly, uh, where which was a field where it had a significant amount of autonomy, mm-hmm. and so that's a big change. Um, so there's there's just a lot of different balls that are up in the air that yeah. are going to continue to change and move, and that. There's going to be. It's still a great field. It's still a ton of fun. I still enjoy showing up to work every day. But I think that for somebody that's younger and trying to figure out what's right for them, getting in with people, shadowing them, really trying to figure out what it's actually like at a ground yeah. level, um, is very important. And uh, you know, there's there's still a significant component of uh, risk and stress associated with it, even though we're all used to the surgeries we do every day. Sure. Um, There's a period in the beginning where it's very difficult when you transition from a trainee to being in practice. And um, I think just exposing yourself as early as you can is, is the most important part. It's still an extremely rewarding field. I think that hopefully my, my thought is that, you know, we're actually one of the few fields, I don't know of really any others, that are the salary and reimbursements constantly going down year to year? Yeah. <laughs> like we don't even go up with inflation. Right. And at some point, um, I hope that we can still attract people that uh, have the right skill set to be good physicians as opposed to people going into business or other mm-hmm. things that they have opportunities for. And I hope those incentives stay aligned so that yeah. we can continue to have a strong field.
0: Yeah. Well, we need it. <laughs> <laughs> So well, uh, let's uh, let's wrap this up because I know you got to run. So first of all, uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And, yeah, uh, no problem. Thanks uh, we, for having uh, me. Yeah, and to all the listeners out there, um, if uh, if you guys are in the Chicagoland area or you have uh, friends, family members, loved ones in this area that have an orthopedic injury, um, you know I could not give a higher recommendation to uh, to visit Dr. Yankee, uh, if, if you so see fit and how would they, how would they connect with you? Obviously rush it's, you know, relatively, uh, well known. Are you on social media at all? Is there, what would be the best way if somebody does have an orthopedic injury or they want to be seen by you? What, what would be the best way to do that?
1: Yeah. So there uh, we do have a general scheduling number, uh, which can be very helpful and, um, I can get you that yeah, information. I'll put, that in we the, can uh, put it in show the notes. notes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, we also have an email associated okay. with that, also. Um, I do have a website, yankeemd.com. Okay. Uh, so Y N K E M D, and uh, I do have social media also, and so we can have all that stuff in there.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll add all that in the uh, in the show notes. So um, yeah. Anyway, th- we can wrap it up. But uh, um, I'll put everything in the show notes of the podcast episode to be able to connect with Dr. Yankee uh, directly and/or his team. So. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, awesome. Thanks for you having me. Sure.